Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another exciting afternoon reading with me, Richard Vobes, on the Bald Explorers reading slot. Uh, we're reading The Wisdom of the Fields by H.J. Massingham, and it's nice to be back in the studio doing the reading for you and with you, uh, those who are watching live, those who are watching after the event, hello, and those listening to the podcast version, hello to you. Hope you can hear me okay, see me, etc., etc. Um, I was going to be away this weekend, this week rather, uh, but it seems that actually that's not happened because of the weather. So hello to uh, Adrian from TurboStream. Good afternoon from a pleasant shire. Uh. Uh, Sean James Cameron says, started raining in London, so perfect timing for a cuppa and tea and a vobes. Uh, Dale Jones, good afternoon to you. Nice to have you with us, Dale. Uh, Ed Loud, good after, good noony afters. And that looks a very nice, clean studio. Yes, after the uh, debacle of the other day, I've cleaned up a little bit, tidied up. So... Um, I do actually want to get this background sorted out and the, um, which way am I going? That way there. The, uh, what do you call them? The neons. I want to get them in boxes, in nice uh, boxes, because at the moment I've had to put ND filters in front of them so that the camera can pick up the light without being too distorted. Uh, Poshington, number one, hello to you. Uh, Turbo Stream says I had a good couple of hours on the allotment this morning and Ed says not raining here yet Sean but I'm in London so not far away give it a few minutes and I'll have a cup or two when it belts down marvellous the lovely Julia hopefully will be joining us she is probably en route back from having poor little Joseph immunised he had four injections today um, and she'd be in on a taxi I, I dropped her there but I had to rush back to get the studio organised for today's reading um, but there we are. Welsh uh, Wanderer Jason Patrick here. Afternoon, Richard. Welsh weather, sunny all day. Well, um, I'm hoping it's not sunny tomorrow because I cancelled a trip to Wales because it was supposed to rain tomorrow. Um, so I'm hoping that that's still the case because I will feel a bit of a prune having let down the person I was going to film. Anyway, uh, we will crack on as best we can. We're on... Uh, Section three of whatever chapter it is. The Sussex Yeoman is what we're on. Um, Turbo Stream says you scrub up well, Richard. Thank you very much. I do my utmost. The constellation of small self-contained farms studied between Taunton and Minehead is a nurse of strong local patriotism. But another quality comes into play. This is neighbourliness. While the stack was building... There was Rowley Selway, or Rowley, I'm not sure how you pronounce his first name, because there's a Rowley house in Shrewsbury, and it's spelt R-O-W-L-E-Y, but it's not spelt Rowley, it's not pronounced Rowley, it's spelt uh, Rowley, so when I see that I now think of Rowley. Anyway, uh, while the stack was building, there was Rowley Selway, a family farmer of 21 acres, climbing the ladder and fitting in the sheaves. Next day, my friend and his man Jimmy were away carrying Yeoman Baker's barley, and this interchange of voluntary labour occurs at the peak periods throughout the year and throughout the region. 
such reciprocal, sorry, reciprocity of reciprocal service fosters, of course, a vigorous sense of community inherited both from the yeoman and the peasant uh, traditions. It illustrates the true service a tractor can perform. Of all crops, barley takes most harm from the rain, and borrowing Yeoman Barker's machine, my friend was able to expedite his carrying. The beauty of this neighbourly intercourse is that it is free of the gang and mobile labour system of the big mechanised farms and of external organisation. To lend a hand is the opposite pole to the planned economy of totalitarian state. Here, no troops of unskilled labour rushed hither and thither for harvest and potato lifting. This community of small farms is a home of freedom. Not freedom from manual labour, but the traditional freedom of a man's home being his castle. The family farmer is the last man on earth again to dream of trying to save labour or man-hours. His solemn aims are quality of labour first and quantity second, while regulations and restrictions of hours mean nothing to a cluster of farms tended and cultivated by the whole family. And he is the last man not to know his own business, for as Captain Little Hart has written Why Don't We Learn From History, freedom is the foundation of efficiency. The family farm also acts as a check upon that fatalistic drift from the land which during the war has left the urban millions to be supported by 6% of the population. Consequently, a backward and rural area of family farms is less empty and less lonely than anywhere else, and the social and neighbourly sense much more highly developed. One of my most cherished experiences was to enjoy this sense of an organic community at first hand. We used to set out on a high spring cart, and there is, and is there, and is there, except on horseback, a more perfect way of becoming familiar with a particular piece of countryside and its native people? Thirty years ago, I was travelling this same country in a carrier horse bus. Thirty years later, I found myself in a spring cart. I felt that only in Somerset this would have been possible. I noticed that not once did we encounter a fellow being without greetings, news, inquiries and other interchanges. I was introduced to a kind of culture of communications. In this slow passage out and about in this small world, I began to see that the phrase the brotherhood of man was not without meaning. The natural friendliness of the Somerset folk, whose voices are usually as caressing as their climate, this, together with the common interests of the land, helped to establish good relations. Cotswold vernacular is the most graphic, Devon and Somerset the warmest in England. Little itch in the eye there. But I am certain that by 
Far the greatest force in nourishing the neighbourliness was the diffusion of small family properties or inherited tenancies. Through it, I came to know a good more people in a week than I would have done in a year among the solitudes of the modern latifundia. I'm not sure that must be a Greek word, latifundia. A gallery moves across my mind as I recollect these jogging jaunts among the high, narrow lanes of Somerset. On one such we passed the triple-arched marl, or lime-kiln, recessed, into the steep hillside, derelict maybe for donkey's years. There we met Mr Welsh, the blacksmith, and the donkeys became more than just metaphorical. He told us that after these lime-kilns lime became disused, the practice of locally liming the fields was still continued by wagons trundling off to watch it, the old woad town, and being loaded by donkeys with panniers fetching lime at low tide from the cliffs. The lime was then mixed with the farmyard manure, a practice recommended in composting by the new science that will one day supplant the orthodox one before spreading on the fields. Mr Welsh was an easy and vivacious man and his his memories I can't pronounce that word elegic memories were poured out with a sprightliness worthy of happier things. He named blacksmith after blacksmith, gone from here and there and yonder. His own son, after assisting him at the forge for eight and a half years, he too had left the country workshop for a jam factory. These family farmers still use horses, but what's the point of a shoeless horse? Another journey was to the wheelwright, Sid Poole, in the village a mile away. This man illustrates what happens to a closely knit rural community when its lifelines are partly cut by the invasion from without. I say partly because this community is remote enough and its integration is embedded so deep in time as to have resisted the almost total paralysis and discontinuity of other rural areas. What has happened is that the wheelwright here has not been driven out altogether, but he has been compelled to shift his vocational craft over to house repairing, plumbing and carpentry jobs. He can now earn his living by deserting the livelihood for which he is supremely equipped. I was fortunate enough to catch him at a moment when the breakdown of the system of tearing up England from her roots had, of, out of necessity, sorry, I read that, I was fortunate enough to catch him at a moment when the breakdown of the system of tearing England up from her roots had of necessity forced a replanting. The increase of corn growing to save us from starvation had switched Sid Paul back again to wagon making, not as a normal full-time occupation which satisfied the whole of his being, but as a sideline now and again. There was the new wagon just built, painted red and blue, and lettered. The undercarriage had been adapted from an old one, and he told me that much as he had enjoyed it, it had not been like making a new wagon. 
that to him would have been the consummate fulfilment. For this tall, lean, spare, neat, brisk, keen-eyed man, whose age was only in his white hair and expressive, well-chiselled face, glowed with ardour for his work. He was a master craftsman every inch of him. He lived for making wagons, and with a selflessness in which the work was all. Thus he told me more about what his assistant and his apprentice had done than himself. I got the measure of his own workmanship less by what he did say about it than by what he did not. The planning, bolting, chamfering, the part-painting of the wagon had been done under his direction by an evacuee he'd had for three years. Having no children of his own, he was bursting with pride in him. By parental pressure, this most promising boy will go back to London after the war, another of the numerous minor tragedies of our countryside. How golden the chance here of rectifying an ancient wrong done to how golden the chance of rectifying the ancient wrong done to it. How clear the way of making the wheelwright a happy man and the boy an artist in serving its needs. What a start towards repeopling its solitudes and restoring interest, skill and pleasure to man's daily work. Before the boy had entered the family workshop, Sid Poole had had an apprentice of whom he was equally proud. When the war came, he was called up and went into the RAF as a carpenter. He acquitted himself so well that he passed his certificate with flying colours in all but the theoretical side. He applied to his old master, who supplied him with the right books to carry him through. But what will be the post-war prospects in wheelwriting for this old apprentice to rejoin him? It is trivial and casual accidents like these that light up the words of Jefferson in Letters of Fire. I view great circles as pestilent. What? I grew? Sorry. I grew. I view great cities as pestilential to the mortals, the health and the liberties of man. No idea what that means. Sid Paul uses a bandsaw and so presented me with one more example of the utility of the small machine to the master craftsman. He maintained that it, was not, it not only freed him to devote more time to the artistry of his handiwork, but cut out the shapes of the fellows more accurately than by hand. A man who so loved the properties, humours and qualities of wood and had educated himself to follow the grain of the organic life, could never be in any danger of being dominated by autonomism. It is the skill-less proletariat that becomes a slave to the machine. Sid's white hair, his aloneness, the obsolescence of his craft, had not been able to subdue his boyish enthusiasm for its mysteries. He was a straggler from the files of the woodmasters, surviving in a period that gazes with wonder at the great hammer-beam roof with angel corbels, all of Spanish chestnut, in the refectory of Cleve Abbey a few miles away, but denies 
to contemporary man the means of moulding into new forms and services the great tradition in the working of wood. To give this man and his like an apprentice of economical security by some modern version of the Statute of Artificers of 1563 would solve more than the problem of unemployment. It would help to solve the problem of creation. Got a bit whimsical there in the last, uh, last paragraph or so of that. Um, hello to the lovely Julia who's popped in. Hello, good to see you. and hope you made it home all right, Julia. Uh, Connor's Dark Corner says, Some people must not like watching people who are satisfied with life. Yes, I think that's true. Some people get very jealous, don't they, if other people are um, enjoying what they do. Uh, Linda says, uh, Latifundium, a large landed estate or ranch in ancient Rome, or more recently in Spain or Latin America, typically worked by peasants or slaves. Ah, John F., good afternoon. Sorry, late again, that's OK. Uh, Cynthia is here, Eld Wolf. I did a video for the evening show, a walk near Haworth. Uh, is it Haworth? Lovely Jew says, the point of the shoeless horse is to be in natural horsemanship. Ah, very good. Uh, looking forward to the video, says uh, lovely Julia. Cynthia Pate says you're very wise. Ed, because Ed said some people think that putting others down, they rise up. Others rightly believe that by helping others climb, there will be friends to pull you up with them. I think that's very good. I think that's very true. Um, yes, Richard, the taxi was prompt and affordable. Fantastic. Oh, I'm so, I'm so pleased because I did mention I gave you a lift up there, but I was worried about how you're going to get back. And I was feeling guilty rushing off to do the video. Men like Welsh and Sid Poole were, of course, the sinews of an agricultural community. And their numbers and varied, and at their numbers and variety, tended to be the greater in one of small farmers. These secluded foothills between the two massive ranges were still fostering the descendants of England's former peasants and yeomen. Of the former, I came to know three, two personally and one by hearsay, because he was always too busy for closer inspection, observation. This man, Mr Mead, had acquired the outlining 75 acres of the farm where I was a guest, the pre-war depression having forced many farmers to let go the lands further from the furthest from the farmhouse for sheer lack of labour, means and heart to cultivate them. These 75 acres, Mr Mead worked with his wife and one land girl, and his labours, both superhuman and inhuman, upon them were acquiring throughout this up valley, this upland valley, a stature of myth. He works over them day by day, year by year, in rags, and when darkness drives him indoors, turns cobbler for the household boots, and finds other ploys to save him from rest. Not a yard of his acreage is neglected. He grows wheat, barley, oats, kale, mangolds and turnips. He milks 11 cows and takes 35 gallons a day, carting their manure to his fields. He keeps 50 to 60 hoggets 
for fertilising his land and fattening in autumn on the roots, stubbles and pastures, and sells them in March. Full fifty comely sheep I raised, as sweet a flock as e'er I gazed. Upon the mountains did they feed, they throve, and we at times did thrive. With his land girl, he has been known to plant a 12,000 cabbages by hand with a biscay, which I assume is a tool of some description, or hand mattock in five days with intervals only for milking. In a country that does not favour either wheat growing or milk production, his labours are redoubled. He has been seen to do the haymaking alone by himself first pitching and then jumping on the cart to load. In six years he has doubled the yields of his farm and made its soil twice as fertile as they were. All the neighbours recognised that he has delivered himself into bondage. He has sacrificed leisure, social intercourse and his very life itself to the devouring love of his farm. Yet my heart will beat a little faster at the news of him. Where does one draw the line between heroism and fanaticism? And at what point does virtue become vicious? And when our perversities are the very reverse of Mr Mead's and we shy at hard manual work like a horse at a ghost, when to stoop and pour and brood over the land in this zoalistic fashion is a contempt in all men's mouths. How could I not but contradict, rec recoil with admiration? Whatever the excesses of his puritanical zeal, he did at least throw a blaze of light upon the modern movement to take the land away from men of whose ardours and endurances in land devotion he is the extravagant representative. Mr Rowe I did meet from the spring cart. He was of profound interest to me because he was the genuine peasant, and the genuine peasant is of exceeding rarity today. Mr Rowe, rent, Mr. Rowe rented four and a half acres, not only of poorish land, but so steep that with only one natural leg to my anatomy I could not climb it without his lay aid. What? With, with only one natural leg to my anatomy, I could not climb it without his aid. Is he, is, was H. J. Did he only have one leg then, Mr. Um, uh, the author, H. J. Massingham? Interesting. Both as a person and as a farmer, he was a little man whose diabetes could not sour his serenity nor crust over his good nature. Still less, he had... Little he had his littleness and his sick still less had his littleness and his sickness prevented him from writing an epic over his diminutive plot. Let's face the facts for themselves. Let them now praise this obscure hero of an achievement fit for fable. <coughs> Sorry, bit of COVID there. Of his four and a half acres, only a few roods are on the flat. And on these he grows early and main crop potatoes. On the summit, a tiny leaning plateau on which his cottage stands, 
strawberries, from which he took £120 in 1944, and flowers for his bees take most of the ground. The only other spaces where a man does not have to dig his toes in the ground are a few yards between the potato patch and the foot of the slope. These he had filled up by haste filled up by a haystack whose grass he had collected from the margins of the lanes and a terrace halfway up on which he had built his piggery and his fowl houses together with a stack of faggots from his hedge cutting. He grows a greater diversity of roots and tops for his livestock and for sale on his four acres than does many a grower with 400 acres of fat and level land. To save room, he had built his boiler for cooking the pig's wheel under a bank and trained his marrows to climb up the wall and along the roof of a lean-to. Goodness. The capacity of his little fields of mangoes, kales, cabbages and onions and the rest that and the rest he had supplanted by the capacity of his little fields of mangoes, kale, cabbages, onions, and the rest he had supplemented by planting some with a trowel in the hedge bank where they grew robustly. He was an orchardist too, lining the rim of the terrace with fruit trees, plums, a peach for his wife, and Tom Putt and Blenheim apples grafted by himself on wild crag uh, wild crab stock and on this tilted plot of land like a pocket handkerchief hung on a line he had enough grass and fodder and grew enough flowers quite apart from his sales and household uses to keep within the area a pony 130 fowl including 30 pullets goats six ewes and a lamb, a breeding sow with a litter of eight, he told me that he had had forty pigs on it, and thirty hives of bees. What is more, his crops, as I could see for myself, were superlative quality, superlative, superlative quality, and his animals, except for a ewe with rapture, rupture, in perfect health. The only labour for cultivation of this chessboard, the beekeeping and the care of the animals, is his own and his wife. He divide, his own is divided between his plot and casual labour for neighbouring farmers, including hedge laying, his wife between it and cooking, between it and cooking and housekeeping. And he's a diabetic. Yet when I told this mighty landsman, and I was moved by what I saw, that he was a credit to his country. He went shyly with wonder at my praise and blushed with gratification. But, I told him, only half of what I felt, but I only told him half of what I felt. He is the tenant of an estate, but if I had been a landowner, I would have paid him to stay on it. For a landowner to have had the privilege of a peasant like this on his land should have been of more account to him than of a famous picture or monument than a precious heirloom or museum piece. Pilgrimages should be made to visit this farmlet. He should be listed in the memorial attractions of his country. 
but he should be regarded as more than one of the worthies of Somerset. His place is as a national figure to teach a heedless generation, stuffed with illusions and false values, what can be done with four acres of poor and difficult land by a man who has never heard of the soil analysis, who can snap his fingers at the chemical combine, who is independent of the machine shops of the whole world, and when the crazy edifice of super-industrialism, international trade and the exploitation of natural resources comes tumbling down, will be the kind of husbandman to save old England from starvation and feed a hundred million people. The first shall be the last, and the last first, and a day will come when we shall look to one who is the most despised and has been the most persecuted of all the children of England, the English peasant. It should never have entered the heads of modern busybodies to, to dis dispossess such men as these and absorb their plots into larger units of ground that are uneconomic. Oh, sorry, on the basis that they're uneconomic, which is a measure of that peculiar lunacy afflicting nations that put this factory farm before them. Or, as Mr F. Sykes of Wiltshire in This Farming Business in 1944 has put it, small farmers would be better employed as helpmen on large farms under farmers with business ability and a greater knowledge of farming as a science. They would be happier, thus freed from the anxieties of farming on their own account, and would earn just as much money as they did in a normal year. Their wives, too, would be spared the drudgery of rearing a family, keeping the home going and doing part-time work on the farm as well. There's a footnote here that says, Mr Rowe, the one we were talking about with the, uh, the land that looks like a a handkerchief on a washing line. That was a lovely description of his land. At the beginning of this year I had a letter... Oh, it says Mr Rowe is not unique. At the beginning of the year I had a letter from a small holder from Peranporth in Cornwall, a woman, 57 years of age, and a cripple. On 20 poles of sandy soil she raised, unaided, in 1944... 210 pounds of honey, 143 pounds of soft fruit, 56 pounds of early potatoes, 500 weight of main crop potatoes, 700 eggs, 18 gallons of mead and elderberry wine, 4 pounds of spun wool, 4 goats, 13 cockerels, 3 pullets, more than 30 hens and enough vegetables to make 9 pounds at a Red Cross sale. And what did she have on 20 poles of sandy soil? Does anyone know how much a pole is? I'm sure Sean James Cameron knows the length of a pole. Another indomitable son of the Somerset soil is Rowley Selway, who rents 21 acres of fields, much scattered and even more uppish and downish than most in, the, in Quantockshire. He too comes from peasant stock among the small farmers and basket makers of Alfred's Isle of Athony at the junction of the Tone of the Tone and the Parrot over the Quantocks to the east. 
some of the flattest land on earth. He rents it because his dearest wish to own it, like the traditional peasant, has not been vouchsafed him. In all but the fact of ownership, he is the characteristic peasant, and I saw a good deal more of him than I had the chance of seeing Mr. Rao, since he dined with us at the farm where I was, and was often about it. Rowley, as everyone called him, is built on very lean and long lines, and the length and acuteness of his embrowned face are such as you would see in grooms. At first sight he looks far too fragile, in contrast with the comfortable curves of his smiling and extremely competent wife, to endure a tenth part of his arduous life. But when he moves, his muscular flexibility is like a leopard's. He is a pard-like creature, beautiful and swift. And with all its shrewdness, he is a honeyed, he, he is a honeyed nature. It is impossible to imagine Rowley upset about anything, and yet he is full of sensibility, and he has, a, he, and he has had a hard and bitterly strenuous life. I didn't bring in a glass of water, which is very irritating, because I feel at half, half an hour into this I need a gulp of something. His father was rather a trial. His his father was rather a trial his consumption of cider having been between 12 hogheads a year, one a month with regularity, but with disorderly consequences. I gathered that Rowley's equanimity was the mainstay of the household. On the flat lands of the basket makers where Alfred once hid in the reeds, he inherited a 50-acre holding after a boyhood not dissimilar from Cobbett's, having been a three-horse plough-boy at North Revel, where teasels were grown for the cloth mills. When the First Great War burst, he was taken from it and an employee from a gas company at Birmingham and was put in charge of it. Consequently, he had no alternative but to sell up when he returned from the battles. He migrated to these warm, tumultuous slopes of the Quantock, and became a roadman on contract with his pony and 21 acres. When the roadmen, who in those days enjoyed considerable freedom and latitude in their individual responsibility for certain sections of the road, came under the county council, he had to work under council officers from 7.30 to 5. This by no means suited with cultivating his holding. Being a true peasant, he threw over the road and bound his life to the fields. He thus belonged to a totally different school of life from that of the wage-earning labourer who feels more secure working on another man's farm than venturing the toils and risks in these days of cultivating his own. He still retains his old habit of collecting dead leaves for his manure heap and muck cart, which time he can squeeze in from ploughing, sowing, reaping and tending his seven cows, now five, ducks and a pig. During the Great Depression, when England once more deserted her countryside for the charms of usury, he was getting fourteen pounds for an in-calf heifer, one pound for a fattened lamb, sixpence for a dozen eggs, eleven pence for a pound of butter and half a crown for a weaner. 
By a miracle of doggedness and tenacity, and with the cheerful aid of one of the best wives, he hung on and never failed to pay his rent. On the family farm, the wife is nearly always her husband's partner, a condition making her an perfectly a condition making for a perfect equality between the sexes and the firmest stability in the home. When the yet bigger war came, Rowley had to produce both meat, both milk and wheat on a handful of acres not suitable for either, and to break more fields than left him and to break more fields than left him feed for his cows. His son Harry, too, had to go into the army, so that he had no help, none whatsoever, no none outside his strong arm and dauntless character and shrewd brain to cultivate a tiny difficult holding on which his whole family subsisted. All manner of men will take a certain pleasure in recollecting tales of hardship and struggle near the bone of endurance, so long as such reminiscences are comfortably ensconced in the past. But Rowley had never known anything else but extremity, not for him to sit back at ease and muse upon an old, unhappy, far-off things and battle, battles long ago. The point about him was the continuity of his sea of troubles, his past stalked obst obstinately, his past stalked obstinately into his present. I'm just going to pause and go and get a glass of water because my throat is beginning to get raspy. So uh, just um, bear with, sorry about this, but I, I meant to bring one in. I'll be two ticks of a lamb's tail. And whilst you work that one out, how many ticks are on a lamb's tail, I will be straight back. My apologies for deserting you so rudely. Uh, let's, whilst I pause though. Uh, let's have a look at some of the, um, some of the comments whilst we're here. Uh, seems to be a few have been going on, which is lovely. Uh, Audrey Forbes is there. Hello, Audrey. Nice to see you. Uh, that was the name of the Faces album. I'm not quite sure what that's all about. Uh, a serious accident happened in 1937 when he left when he injured his leg, leading to a two-year period of regular hospital video, visits. Oh, is this H.J.? Is this H.J.? Oh, right. Uh, let's have a look. Is this what happened? At the end of which he hurt the same leg again and it had to be amputated. Oh, wow. Um, Ed Loud just struck me as my mother has only used one leg and is trying to get back into walking. Linda Kane carries on. He was forced to stop travelling as frequently as he had been doing and settled down to writing some 30 more books. Well, we are indebted to him for doing just that. Thank you for that, um, Linda. Um... So there we are. He only had one leg. Gosh. Uh, right, OK. So a metre is about three inches longer than a yard. Um, a pole is five and a half yards. Uh, 
Um, right, okay. His past stalked obstinately into his present. What a great metaphor. Morton Lewis, absolutely. Morton Lewis, you really like, um, you really notice the English phrases that are used in the books. I really appreciate that because I read over them and I just think, wow, you know, some of the writing, some of those, and it's, it's, the, it's those, exactly that, that, that is, to me, is spine chilling in a, in a nice way. You know, when you read a sentence so beautifully constructed and the thought so precisely says what it's supposed to say. I just think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, so there we are. One pole is five and a half yards. What's that in feet? Five, three fives, 15. So it's about 15, 16 and a half feet. Is that right? A pole is 16 and a half feet. Would that be right? Five, three fives. A fifteen, half a yard is one and a half feet, sixteen and a half feet. Um, yes, his uh, that was a that was a lovely line. His past stalked obstinately into his present. Uh, right. So. I'm just getting rid of this throat. On his holding, he grows kale, swedes, turnips. Three years, a three years lay, wheat, barley, maize and oats. And for his ploughing, has no complicated outfit sent by the War Agricultural Committee. He only has his pony. But he also has an allotment of an acre and a quarter for keeping the household in fresh vegetables and spent many long hours every week up at the observer post in uniform. He might therefore be expected to take some interest in modern discussions on the leisure state. But if you were to offer Lowry, Rowley sorry, the prospect of several, several hours a day doing nothing... He would re regard it as equivalent to going to prison. Do you know, I know what that feels like. I can't sit still. I need to feel I'm doing something or I'm not. Um, I mean, even when I'm reading occasionally, I feel guilty that I ought to be doing something more, something physical, something, anything. And yet reading is, you know, to me is um, it's my university. And when I read these books, you know, I've been going round in my head thinking I need a bit of land, I want to be able to do stuff. And then I read about these guys that we've just been reading about, these men determined and giving their life over to doing what they do. And I just can't help thinking that's where I want to be. I want to be working, tilling that soil, growing things. It must be the you know the most the most important thing a person can do is to grow food because without it you are nothing and to be able to do that and and on you know these people were amazing i mean if they're not an inspiration i don't know what is
So Rowley has always lived and worked with worked under an economic cloud and a harder, more anxious life there could not have been. Yet a happier, more charitable, gentle, serene and honest countryman is not to be found over all the broad acres of England. His long, sharp face, mahogany brown as, the autumn ho as, a, as an autumn whore, is a portrait of, and whore is an H-A-W, you know, the berry of a hawthorn, is the portrait of content, of content. And as he talked beside us, sitting round the open hearth of blazing logs, what an old Cotswolder once called to me a blizzy, boiling the copper kettle on its ratchet hook of energy in repose. Boiling the copper kettle on its ratchet hook. You know, I just want to have a, a little country cottage in which there is the land and you have a hearth of blazing logs upon which you also have your copper kettle on its ratchet hook. Isn't that living? That's living for me. You can keep your... You turn the thing and the gas comes on. You can keep all that modern contrivances. Definitely. Uh, they say that the art of conversation is no more, but they have not heard... Rowley describing his own art of ploughing with a three-horsed plough, leader, filler and trace horse in that heavy wheat and bean land of his forefathers, driving so straight a furrow that a rabbit could be seen among it from one end to the other. Of how he set his plough thrice and how the horses leaned to turn at the headland, of cutting out, gathering up and casting off, there was talk of a master. This was farmerin at its most vocational and expert pitch, as remote from the modern slap-and-dash ploughing with a tractor as this benign countryside from the fret of cities as this benign countryside from the fret of cities. Rowley's discourse flowed on into the tunable soft voice of men of Somerset from what we call in my part of the country plushing. What we call in my country plushing the embanked high double hedges of the Quantock area to irrigating the oyster beds of the Isle of Athony and building stone-slatted roofs of that of Brendan Stone, which time and weather m mature into the silvery old age of Kent Oak. He was as professional about cider-making as about ploughing, and the proper apples of the West Country for that traditional craft, Kingston Black, first and foremost, Liver Black, Red Cap and Hangdown. His wife knew as much as he did about cider-making, immortalised in The Woodlanders, where Giles Winterbottom, Autumn's very brother, travelled with his portable mill from farm to farm. But her father's mill was the kind that stays put, and it took four men to turn the handle of the granite crusher to make a cheese for the press. Such men as Row Rowley Selway are the very anchorage of the nation to hold it from sinking under the tidal wave of money and machines. 
When I think of him, I am reminded of Rorschning's words in The Revolution of Destruction. Deliverance lies in the forces of true conservatism and in the healing restoration of the spiritual and social forces of the historic past. When I think of peasant society Rowley rep that, that Rowley represents, I am reminded of a letter I received from an English major on the Italian front. As far as the eye can see, there are olives, now laden with their black fruit, nearly ripe enough to pick. Between the olives stand the vines on their posts, now brown, cut back and tied, in readiness for next year's grape harvest. Below the wheat, below, the wheat is already sprouting, making the third crop in this immensely fertile soil. There's plenty of labour, and it is a common sight to see seven women bending over the ground in a line, breaking the sod and thinning roots. Although the Germans have killed 80% of their stock, there is still much manure from the remaining bove, and it is used carefully and economically, for here they have no superphosphates or limes and rely entirely on natural manures and the working of the land. There is something very heartening about the large white ox ploughing very slowly, walking at a pace that will not be increased. I think that the Italian works harder than farmers in most parts of England. At any rate, he couldn't do more work. The way in which they terrace the slopes and build walls is a lesson for anyone, and required much labour and technique. On me, this fecundity of the soil and the production which the Italians get without the aid of modern implements has had a very profound impression. I realise that it is not merely the fertility that produces the results. It is the adequate supply of labour and the practice of a really, of, of a really economic husbandry. And that ends that little section, which is where I'm going to pause now, because uh, we are at 10.2, um, and we go on from there. So let's just check out any uh, other comments. I love this book. I, I really, really love this book. Um, now, if we only stuck to feet, inches and miles, my brain would not struggle exactly. A metre is about three inches long. Yeah, yeah we, we, uh, a full-size allotment is ten poles. Ten poles. So that what's that, 160 feet? Uh, something like that. Uh, Bella Leighton. Never, Linda Kane. Credit where credit's due. Reading makes the understanding of life more intense. That's true. A kettle of water warming for a large inglenook fireplace on a cold winter's evening. Now that is living. That certainly is. The smell of wood smoke. Yeah, wood smoke. Yeah, I get that. I'm going to get light the essay and have the smell of wood smoke very shortly. Uh, at Time with Mindy says, uh, Ed, I used to make toast by the coal fire. Not quite the same. Uh, I'm not so keen on coal, burning coal. I'd much rather burn wood. And Ed Loud says, My Aunt Deborah has an old coal fire. Love doing that, Mindy. Um, that's it for today, but I hope to be back again tomorrow. Um, I hope you've enjoyed today. Thank you so much for coming along. 
Uh, I've enjoyed it. I absolutely love this book. It's uh, it's an incredible it's an incredible book. Graham Cass says, anyone here filled a tin bath for hot bath? It's hard work. Yes, I bet. What from a from a fire? Linda Saint says, can I come round and smell the essay? Of course you can. Come round any time. I'll make you a lovely cup of tea. I use a an iron kettle on the essay. We're gonna have a cup of tea. I need to sort my kitchen out because I want to put a a nice comfortable sofa so that one can sit there in front of the essay in the winter and um and just chill out and re read books and fall asleep and just chuck a few logs on it's it's one of the most beautiful things i think and um it's just a lovely thing to have and it i mean i know it costs a lot of money and it's not for everybody and it's a faff you've got to clean it out and sometimes you get a bit of blowback and the smoke comes in and what have you but um it is a beautiful thing and i it's one of it's one of my um most beloved possessions that and my books of course um turbo says i listened to the vobes as i sat in my country cottage fire blazing in the hearth looking out over my acreage in birmingham well that sounds very nice i should be round uh, michael white says it's a great book thank you it is a great book it is and graham says done that with bath wasn't tin though filled from a large metal kettles back breaking used to wash by hand too and lee lawson says can't beat a log fire very comforting it is it is very comfortable there's something that just lulls you off and you feel you feel safe until that little tiny little spark of wood that's popped out burns the carpet catches the curtains alight and sets the house on fire fortunately in the kitchen that doesn't happen because there's a tiled floor looking forward to a chilly winter days in front of my log burner yes absolutely the conundrum is emptying the bath <laughs> yes. anyway uh i lied it's a 1930 semi-detached all oh, right fair dues i'm still really enjoying this book too says the lovely julia well i enjoy reading it out to you sorry a bit croaky today um, thank you very much for coming by and I will be back again tomorrow look after yourselves, have a good day there is a Vogue show tonight, not sure what's in on it whether we've got some good videos or not but hopefully so in the meantime look after, look after yourselves I'm going to go and chop some wood and light the SE, clean it out, light the SE and then probably uh, have to go and find some food by all accounts I'll have to go to the supermarket and slum it with uh not very good food but there we are what can you do anyway it's been nice to see you take care and i will catch you next time bye bye for now bye bye thank you for coming bye bye